morning, everyone. It's August 27th, and you're tuned into WRT's Her Turn. I'm your host today, Carla Williams. We're going to do something a little different, so hopefully you enjoy it. We have a feature for you today. Ali Muldrow, Gay Straight Alliance for Safe Schools, for G-Safe. I have Alita LaCrosse, a Madison Metropolitan music teacher, and Andrell Davis, a Cultural Responsive Practices Coordinator with Wisconsin RTI Center. After this short musical break, you'll hear voices of Alita LaCrosse, Andrew Davis, and Ali Muldrow. Thanks for listening. I tried to drink it away. I tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hair. I wear my credit card below. Ali, why did you decide to become a teacher or an activist for Gay Straight Alliance? And I was really aware of kind of the way Madison perceives children of color and the kinds of educational opportunities that children of color are consistently left out of. And I thought having firsthand experience, I graduated at a time when about 38% of African-Americans were graduating. So less than half of the people I had gone to school with my whole life were graduating. I had kind of a, a duty to to work to change things. I think you can't you can't see a school failing everybody that looks like you um, to some extent and and sit back and hope somebody else does something about it. Alita, why did you decide to become a teacher? I had great teachers, like throughout my entire childhood. I had teachers who cared for me, didn't lower the bar. Andrew, why did you decide to become a teacher? Why did you decide to become a cultural responsive coordinator. To educate them in a way that I felt like would connect with some of their experiences and who they were as people. State tests are showing that African-American students are falling behind the most in academic achievement gaps. What are some ways you feel the education system could combat these issues? What do you think, Andrew? If students are being told over and over again in various ways through the media, through the way someone may look at them, the way that someone would interact with them, or through the believing of stories that they've been told without really truly getting to know who the students are, we have to begin to research and identify what have been some of the highest order models that can be demonstrated and shown to students about who they can become with their possible selves. So, again, validating and affirming some of those cultural behaviors and norms that may be looked at as deviant in other settings, but us being able as practitioners to look at some of those through a different lens and flip that script on what we're calling BAD, bad, and looking at those things, as Maya Angelou says, as gifts, What are your thoughts on the education imbalance for students of color, Alita? I don't think fixing education or the the school-to-prison pipeline is complex to fix. It's have more black teachers. Yes. It's a simple solution. And yes, student-centered learning, but I am floored by the excuses that I hear in my own community about why I can't teach. 
I know it's hard. I went through school to become a teacher. There's nothing easy about it. The lack of representation. Because we understand our situation. Like, you know, the majority of public school teachers are white females, women. The majority of public school administrators are white males. That's where the shift has to take place. Ali, what are your thoughts? I do want to add to that because I feel like oftentimes we talk about solutions to the achievement gap or to the school to prison pipeline. And we talk about initiatives, feeling loved and feeling encouraged and feeling supported in the things that inspire you. That is the best way to access your education. And we do that for white students, particularly for young white men. You know, they get to be the main character in the book. They get to be the author of the book. They get to have a teacher that looks like them. They get to have a principal that looks like them. They get to have six of seven school board members that they can identify identify with. So we set young white people up to see themselves as capable of anything and to really have a sense of their education belonging to them. Oftentimes, if we're the type of practitioners that only really care about our content areas and not really concern ourselves with what our hands are doing or in that skill building area, what are our pedagogical approaches looking like? Are they reminiscent and are they are they fluent enough to reach all learners? So what have we done to reach all of the populations that sit before us? That's a good point, Andrew. I think it's important for practitioners or teachers to ask themselves, how are they connecting with each student? Are they making the effort to connect with them on a cultural and educational level? Because learning is deeper than just textbooks. Alita, you look like you have something you want to say. I mean, I just think it comes back to representation. I don't want my students to have me be the only black teacher they've ever had. I guess for me, I know well enough that I don't represent every single black woman perspective that's in the world. So I think it's important in schools, there's more than one, there's more than two. We are so very diverse. I don't want students to look at me and go, well, this is how Miss Lacoste is, but you should have this whole community of diverse teachers who you're able to say, oh yeah, I had a teacher who was like that, but I also had another teacher who was like this. As black folks ourselves, we know how important representation is for us. When you dig deep for the history, you realize that we are so multifaceted. We're intellectuals, we're scholars. You know, we're all of those things that people say we can't be. If kids don't see a reflection of themselves or feel like they're valued anywhere in history, then they check out. Ali, how do you feel communities of color need to come together to help bridge the gap of education for African-American students? We talk about communities of color as if they're the solution to this problem, this problem that they have not created. How do we equip our students to be critical of a, an oppressive society and not take responsibility for it mm-hmm. and not absorb the strain of that oppression themselves, but actually uh, combat it? We're constantly taught to think of ourselves as a problem that needs to be solved. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with us. You know, slavery doesn't say anything about us. How are you going to exploit and abuse Mm -hmm. somebody for centuries and then try to pretend that that is uh, an attribute of their community? That's like me punching you in the face and saying you got a history of getting punched in the face. If I took you to Germany today and I took you to a juvenile jail and it was all Jewish kids, you'd say that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. Y'all have a history of mistreating this community. And yet here we are Mm -hmm. in Dane County and 
you can go into the juvenile detention center on any given day and it's more disproportionately black than our adult prison facilities. In 2015, we launched a program with the Gay Straight Alliance for Safe Schools with G-Safe called the New Narrative Project. And that actually allowed us to go into the Dane County Jail and do advanced learners courses based in consent culture for students who are experiencing incarceration. And so these students who would who had historically never gotten educational opportunities for advanced learners while incarcerated now had this opportunity to examine the system that they were impacted by critically and to and to be seen as relevant and important leaders. And we were trying to kind of bridge the gap between the student and the community. So the New Narrative Project really aimed to, to give students access to academic success. We're going to get ready to wrap this up. Andrell, do you have any final statements? Do students walk into their school buildings and do they see themselves? Do they see the highest order model of who they can be? Do they see people who look like them? Do they see symbols that they can identify with? Are we really looking at ourselves and willing to move on that oath that we took as educators to be the best that we could be to educate all students sitting before us. Are we really doing that work? Are we doing the work on ourselves? Are we doing that work to get to know the students and families that we're serving? And then are we translating that into our practice? What about you, Alita? I think um, great teachers create great leaders. Ali? There's no nice way to say, get your foot off my neck. We can stop trying to figure out the nice way to navigate justice. We can stop trying to figure out the polite way. We have a right to an education. I think it's if we can't go to a school and get an education, we are going to have to stop sending our kids to a school where instead of learning to read, they learn that they are bad. I'm Carla Williams. You're tuned into Her Turn on WRT. We'll be right back after a short musical break. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm in studio here with Dr. Billings, the Kellner Family Distinguished Professor of Urban Education at UW. How are you today? Fine, and you? Not too bad. So I guess I wanted to touch base with you and get your opinion because a lot of times we talk about like the high school level and, and middle school level education, but we, we I guess we a lot of times we leave out college level education because African-American students do go to college. Indeed, they do. <laughs> and so I wanted to get your take on what you feel like makes a good teacher, especially for students of color, because a lot of times we talk about education and we, we lump class together and we lump race together. And a lot of times people, white people do come from poor neighborhoods. Right. right. So how do we tackle education so that everyone's learning? Everyone has the same experience of progressing because it's e- it's easy to say. Um, I was listening to this man and he was speaking and he said, equality like is is everyone getting the same thing, and but we want to we want to get a, get it to get it to a place where everyone's on equal playing field, but we forget that sometimes if we get the same thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll have the same outcome. Right, and I think there is a difference between notions of equality and equity. So while, while equality might be giving everyone the same thing, equity is more about giving people what they need so that they can be. Um, successful in whatever the endeavor is. Uh, But as a college professor, you know, uh, I always, one of the first things I try to remind students of color is that they belong there. I think that many of our students show up with some degree of self-doubt. You know, like, 
mm, maybe I don't really belong. Now, that's also true of some of our white students, um, but they find ways to fit in easier, particularly on a campus that is predominantly white, um, which is one of the reasons why I think historically black colleges and universities, uh, Latino-serving institutions, uh, tribal colleges all have a, a role to play for certain students because that feeling like one belongs is a crucial piece to education um, you know, beyond secondary school. Uh, Many students live in new communities, so you don't get to go home like you get to go home from high school. So when you have to live somewhere, you have to figure out how to fit in. So that first lesson, like I said, is just reminding students, you belong here. Um, The university is not a charity organization. We don't take people that we feel sorry for. We take people who are qualified to be there. Also, I was listening to you speak one time, and I was hearing you say that your children had had similar experiences where they had went to school, and even though they're upper middle class, mm-hmm. they still had experiences where they felt like they didn't belong. Right. So how do you, like, I guess especially with this whole, like, racially driven community that's happening now, the whole Black Lives Matter and all these kind of things, how do we connect with students on a level to help them learn and not see them as, like, bad or deviant students just based off of a record or because of their skin color? Well, I think I'm probably going to take a different Um, tact than Mm -hmm. some of the earlier speakers and point out that for me, the people who need real education about themselves are white students. For me, the teachers who need education about themselves are my white colleagues, that their inability to see themselves as anything other than, quote, normal and universal and correct is one of the biggest stumbling blocks uh, most, and I'll speak for black students, uh, or I'll speak towards black students, enter the university with what I would call a kind of double consciousness. They understand the world of being black, but they've, if they're at the university level, they've figured out enough about the world of being white to be able to get there. So they've navigated those systems up to this point. But most white people that I encounter on a university campus, be it students or faculty, have never really had to think about what does it mean to be white in a society that believes that being white is absolutely correct? Uh, What is it like to really examine one's own basis for their beliefs and their values and their thinking? Um, So I think the hardest work that I do is helping white students do what I would call is a kind of cultural excavation, just digging back into their own lives. And many of them come come through it um, really shaken because it's like, I never thought about that before, or I never considered that I could be wrong about something, you know. So I was I actually went to Edgewood and being my being like one of one of two black students in the classroom and having that learning experience, like you said, you know, digging back and having to sit around like Caucasian students and having them interact with me on a level as a teacher. How do you combat that? Because, I mean, you can speak from a teacher's experience and I can only speak from a student's experience. Right. So as a teacher, how do you combat that? So a lot of the work that I do with students is really about helping them examine what we might call, and this is a kind of academic term, but the the notion of the regimes of truth, this belief that this is just how things are, this is how the world is organized. Well, no, this is how you organize it, or this is what you subscribe to. 
But what if it were organized another way, just giving them the, the uh, a peek into that other world? So I do have students read Du Bois. And, and I have start out by saying, if you haven't read W.E.B. Du Bois, you are ignorant of the intellectual history of the nation. Well, that makes people sit up because, of course, they don't want to be ignorant. They want to think they know things. Uh, so I often have students say to me, how come I never heard of these people before? How come I never knew about this before? So I talk to them, again, about not just Du Bois, but about Woodson. I said, it's not just a miseducation of the Negro, which is the title of his very famous book. It's your miseducation, too. It's what you don't know. So I try to upset this sort of equilibrium that they come in with um, because it's important for them to really get a handle on that there's a world outside of the world in which that I inhabit. There's a way of thinking and reasoning beyond the one that I have. Now, I'll tell you, it's a lot harder with faculty because, of course, they are considered experts in whatever they do, and just pushing them to think differently is, is a huge challenge. The, the, the struggle that I have is when there's just one or two students of color is that they get an added burden placed on them. Um, they're supposed to be carrying the culture for everybody. And, and that's just not true. Nobody embodies an entire culture. I think that's a really great point that you touched on, faculty. As a teacher of color, how do you interact with other teachers that aren't of color, especially with so much happening right now? Um, well, I guess I've been at it long enough to just speak my mind. So if they come to me with, you know, like last year someone wanted me to come and talk to a group of faculty about race, and I just looked them in the face and said, no. And they were shocked, and they were like, but, but that's what you research." I said, yeah, but it's not my responsibility. You guys have to figure out how to do this. So at some point, I think being as honest and forthright with people about not carrying their particular burden for them is one of the things. The other thing I think is that we have to be sort of aware of the the kind of responses we want to give to questions. So I'll take you all the way back to the O.J. Simpson trial. I knew, I absolutely knew that faculty would say something to me about that. And sure enough, I had a colleague who asked me, well, Gloria, what do you what what do uh, black people think about this OJ thing? And I said as calmly as I knew how, I don't know. What do white people think about? It? And in that moment, that faculty person just was like, "Oh, that was a really dumb question, wasn't?" It? So I, I let them have that own their own discovery. Um, that that ability to shift and have them really rethink the kinds of questions they even ask. I was actually talking to a woman last night, an African-American woman, uh, and she works in a major corporation, and she said someone said to her something about her that she wasn't black, right? And she said, what What allows people to ask those kind of questions or make those kind of statements? And, and that's that's the digging, I love your answer. I'm still <laughs> on the whole. <laughs> so I guess my question to you is, as someone who is in like academia, how do I go into class? And because I can't really say to a teacher, I can't answer that. So how do I tackle all these issues? Because a lot of times at, during my experience at Edgewood and like with the Eric Garner thing that happened, that was a really mm -hmm. big thing at my mm -hmm. school. And I remember going into class and we, 
teachers feel like, oh, we should have this discussion. We should have the space. But a lot of times it feels like it becomes attack against each other. Right. So how do teachers come together, like come together with their students and have an open discussion, open forum, and then there is no students of color or there is one or two. And then like, I can't say, oh, I don't want to discuss it or, or like, oh no, you or like, you know, like have a savvy, like, you know, really response. Well, actually you can say, I don't want to discuss it. Um, They they really won't know what to do with that (laughs) because their expectation is for you to carry this for them. Um, there is actually a DVD, very short DVD, called uh, And Nobody Said a Word. And it's about having these conversations at the college level. And it's a, it's a DVD of short vignettes where there are things that happen in classrooms, whether it is about having a TA who is uh, uh, has a second language, whether it is about um, students having to be self-revealing, whether it's about being a student who is a Muslim and in hijab and hearing all around her conversations about uh, Muslim terrorists. Um, and I say that in quotes because that, uh, what is a Muslim? What's a Christian terrorist? From this, yeah. Uh, but, and, and it's designed to have faculty, not students, but faculty think about, okay, would you have said something? What would you have said? How would you have dealt with that in your classroom? Um, and I think faculty do have that special responsibility to do more than um, just shut down an unpopular idea, but to really kind of deal with it and open it up. Uh, I had an experience last year where a woman who was actually not from this country, she was visiting, and she spent some time in an um, elementary school in Milwaukee because she had a friend there, and she, she was sharing her experience there, and she wasn't saying, quote, the right words. I knew what she was saying, but you could see my students squirming because she said something like, oh, well, and the kids uh, have bad parents and because they don't do this or they don't do that. I knew that the, she didn't mean anything negative. It was like, first of all, her English needed to catch up. And, and it was a way of trying to say that, the parents were not able to do certain things that one might ex- the school might expect parents to do. But that was a term she used. And she wrote me this long email about how many other students had attacked her later, um, that that was incorrect and you shouldn't have said that. And, that. and the people who attacked her were not students of color. So this, this kind of self-righteousness that the students are exploring or exhibiting and I'm thinking, yeah, but when is the last time you actually helped someone of color? When is the last time you ever put yourself out? So I told her not to worry about it. I said, you know, I know you were struggling with language, uh, and I kind of got what you meant, um, and don't let it worry you. But I think there is always that kind of tension that exists in the classroom, again, where we want to put the burden on the few students of color, the one woman, the one student who has... Um, is openly gay or lesbian or, or, or bisexual or transgender. Uh, we want to put everything on them and say they should be the expert. Uh, it's a very lazy way of teaching. Um, and I actually do think there ought to be more conversations when, quote, we're not in the room about these topics because that's the only way people are going to be open and honest. So over your years of studying and experience, what is something that you would offer out to students of color to, I guess, 
encourage them to take on this new perspective or new role or even Caucasian students? Because you were saying that you like to take the perspective of Caucasian students and reshape their thinking as well. Mm -hmm. So what is something that you would offer to these students? So uh, when I taught in um, K-12 education, I I was a history teacher. And so I'll never kind of leave that. No, wherever I go, I always read the history of a place. I want to know where did it come from? Whose idea was it? What were they thinking? So when I went to Stanford, for example, when I read the history, you know, when I came away from the archives, I said, well, it's very clear they didn't make this place for me, you know. So why should I feel like, oh, they should bend over backwards for me? It was never intended for me. So since it's not intended for me, then what's my role? Well, my role is to get whatever I can get out of this situation to my advantage, despite the fact that the very building that I went into every single day had the name of an avowed racist who said black people had no business being in the university. So it's, I, I considered every day a victory. Uh, there was another building on campus called the Terman Building, and Lewis Terman is sort of the modern father of eugenics. Uh, he's the one that came up with the translation of the Stanford Binet Intelligence Test. Uh, he really didn't, he's the one that came up with gifted education, and he didn't think anything other than Northern uh, Europeans, Northern and Western Europeans were smart enough. Everybody else was an idiot. I used to walk through the Terman building on purpose every day. Uh, and my, my classmates would say, why do you always go through that building? I said, because I need Mr. Terman to understand I'm here. You know, there's, you know, now the man was dead, of course. But, but some way, you know, the, the little victories I think that you can get. So think about a place like uh, the University of Wisconsin. What was it built for? Who was it built for? Uh, I think what is probably the most scandalous thing about the university is that the average per capita income of our undergraduates is somewhere around $127,000. I cannot imagine that the farmers of Wisconsin, as I've read this history, said, hey, let's make us a school for the the rich people. I I just don't think that was the concept. So in some ways... Knowing that the university has shifted and it, its mission seems to shift with that um, ought to have us thinking differently about what is it that the university is trying to accomplish. Um, we all have goals, and we, we just need to figure out whether or not our goals can be accomplished in the settings that we find ourselves. Um, and probably the best way to say it is the way that my grandmother would have said it is take what you get and make what you want. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Do you have any final statements? Well, I will just, you know, remind people as we're heading back to school that um, transitions are difficult. They're, they're difficult in kindergarten. They're difficult in middle school, high school, and indeed they are difficult in college. So um, try to enjoy the transition. Uh, try to enjoy the time that you were there and realize that being able to go to college, being able to go to university is a special gift. I want to thank you so much for taking out the time to be here today. You're welcome. Um, Everyone, please stay tuned for Her Infinite Variety with Steph Stringer. I'm Carla Williams, and I want to thank you all so much for listening today. But it's